This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, Joe Lauder with you for the Hack Podcast. And I reckon I know the biggest question on your mind right now. What am I going to have for dinner tonight? (laughs) Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's a question that's always on my mind. Well, I want to know, does your dinner have at least three veggies? Is that something you're planning right now when you're thinking about dinner? Stick around to find out how many Australians are eating the right amount of fruit and veggies every day. I'll give you a hint. It's not enough. And later in the show, you're also going to meet a young guy who wants to put an end to character references being used for sex abuse crimes. First, though, we're speaking to a campaigner from what he calls the Progressive No campaign on The Voice to Parliament. Hack. The Voice to Parliament has been toted as a progressive step forward for Indigenous rights in Australia, but it's not. On Triple J. The number one question we've been getting from you about the referendum on The Voice to Parliament is... Do Aboriginal and Torres Strait, what do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want? And the answer is all different things. It's not like this is one big group that all has the same opinion about this. And not every First Nations person supports the voice. There's a campaign of what they call progressive no's. This is a group who thinks the voice doesn't go far enough. Kieran Stewart Asherton is a UN man and the president of the Black People's Union. And he's part of that progressive no campaign. And he's with me now. Hey, Kieran, welcome to Hack. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Why are you voting no and campaigning for no? Um, there's a whole range of reasons why myself and the Black People's Union have taken the position that we have. You know, I could talk for hours on it, but to try and summarise it, we see it as something that's not just not enough, but it's something that's actually regressive and actually harms our movement. Now, if we go back and we look at the history of this constitutional recognition proposal, it first came about as a conservative proposal to try and undermine our cause for land rights, self-determination and sovereignty. So that's where it came from. Today, why do you think it is not relevant or not what you support in terms of having a voice? Because it's a regressive body that actually takes power away from us. The way it's proposed is that this voice body will only be able to give representations to Parliament on specific issues that Parliament allows them to in the first place. But as it currently stands, any individual or any organisation right across Australia can already give representations to Parliament on any issue. So this voice body will actually have less power than any other organisation or individual in Australia. But do we know that yet if we don't know the full details of how the voice would operate? Is it right that that won't come out until after the referendum? Uh, no, we do know that because it's in the um, the referendum amendment bill where it talks about the powers and the composition will be determined on the government. And we've also had Albanese come out a few times on record now, you know, saying how the voice will operate if it is pushed through while he's still in government. And so you've described your side as the progressive no campaign. How do you see it as different to the, I guess, the more recognisable no campaigners and politicians who are out there that a lot of people might have already heard a lot from? How is it different? Yeah, well, there's two no campaigns, as um, you know, some people may or may not be aware. Um, ours is different because ours comes from a position of demanding more and resisting in the colony, whereas the racist no that persists out there, that comes from a position of, denying Aboriginal people even the bare basic scraps. How do you feel about being on the same side as, you know, the group that you're describing in your own words as racist? Look, the way I prefer to see it is they've come over to our side. You know, this constitutional recognition is something that MOB have proposed for going on two decades now. The racists and the conservatives and the right-wingers who have come out know 
have only come out now in the past few months. Yeah, we've been literally fighting this for close to two decades, and they've been fighting it for a couple of months. They've come into our camp, not the other way around. And so are you saying that this this idea of a voice to parliament has been around for two decades? Um, yes and no. It's more the constitutional recognition that's been around for two decades. The voice to parliament is just a pretty little packaging that they've wrapped it up in to try and push it through again. This will be the fourth attempt that they've made at trying to assimilate Indigenous people into the Australian constitution. What would you like to see if not a voice to parliament, and it sounds like you're not supportive of other forms of constitutional recognition, what would you like to see instead? Um, look, there's two things I would like to see. First and foremost, I would like to see the recommendations that already exist be implemented. Recommendations like the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the Bringing Them Home Report, to name just two. We've got 30 years of recommendations there that are sitting unimplemented that would save First Nations lives today and would make a major difference in our lives today. Now, going forward beyond that, though, what I would ultimately like to see is the replacement of the colonial government structure with a First Nations-led government model that would empower the entire working class, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, and provide a greater level of equality and greater quality of life for everybody. And would that come in the form of treaties? Is that something that you would prefer over a voice? Um, Yes and no. I don't place much faith in treaties with the colonial government itself. That being said, I'm a big believer that we should have treaties first and foremost between Indigenous nations here in Australia. What we need to do is we need to create a pan-Aboriginal movement that brings together all of the mob right across the continent so that we can have that stronger bargaining position. And then if we do want to enter into a treaty with the colonial government, we'll have a lot better position to be able to do that and a lot more strength to be able to demand better. Isn't that what a voice is in terms of a pan-Aboriginal body that would make representations to the government? Uh, Not at all. So the way the voice is proposed, it'll be... Its composition will be determined by the government at the end of the day. And it's a body that's subservient to the government. Now, a body that belongs to the government and is subservient to the government is not in any position to enter into or to debate or negotiate international treaties between First Nations people and the government that that body would belong to. It's an oxymoron. It's like saying we're going to have an international treaty between, you know, one government branch of the Australian government and another government branch of the Australian government. You know, international treaties simply do not work that way. We need to enter an international treaty from a perspective of sovereignty as First Nations people. And you don't see the voice as a step towards that? Not at all, no. It's a subservient body to the government. Supporters of the voice who are campaigning on the yes side have said that this is an opportunity to try something different because they would agree with you in saying that what we've been doing so far hasn't led to meaningful change and enough change for First Nations people in this country. Are you concerned that if no wins, then it will be the end of any political attempts for the next while to find another way to politically represent and recognise the First Peoples of Australia, that it would put effectively for some time an end to this conversation? I'm more concerned with the mentality that has people saying this. You know, that comes from a mentality of... We're only going to help you with this little minor concession. And if you don't want to take our little scraps that we're throwing to you, we're not going to provide you any more further assistance. But ultimately, that's a very manipulative and abusive position for people to take. You know, if people really truly wanted to help First Nations people, they would do it regardless of the outcome of this voice. And see a no vote and go, oh, well, we're not going to help the Blackfellas anymore. If people really 
be truly wanted to help us, they'll be out there helping us every day, regardless of how the referendum goes down. And for people to turn around and say that nothing will happen if a no vote gets up, that's just a self-admission from themselves that they're not going to actually put in any effort or any energy to help us accomplish something tangible. I'm speaking to Kieran Stewart-Asherton. He's a UN man and he's the president of the Black People's Union and he's part of one of the no campaigns, what he describes as the progressive no campaign. Kieran, let's fast forward to October 15. What do you think it'll say about Australia if that day, if no wins? Oh, I think if no wins, it's going to really highlight the reality of Australia here. Now, at the end of the day, you know, we've got these two no campaigns, but both of these no campaigns highlight the reality of what it means to be Australian and what Australia is better than the Yes campaign could ever do. Australia is a very backwards and racist nation. If a no vote gets up, this is only demonstrating to the rest of the world exactly what the reality is here in Australia for First Nations people, that we live in a highly racist and a highly oppressive society. Do you not see it as a contradiction that that's what it'll say, but then you're still campaigning for it? And even though a no campaign, that's what you think it'll represent? Um, not at all, because the reasons we're campaigning for it aren't about the symbology of it. We're campaigning no as a pragmatic approach to try and prevent the colonial government having another neoliberal tool in its toolbox that it can wheel out and weaponise against First Nations activists on a grassroots level. On the flip side, what do you think it'll say about Australia if yes wins? I think if yes gets up, what that will say about Australia is more specifically about non-Indigenous Australia. It'll say that their job here is done. They can give themselves a pat on the back. The Aboriginal scenario has been addressed and nobody has to do anything. We can all get on with our day. But at the end of the day, a yes vote isn't going to address deaths in custody. It's not going to address our stolen children or destruction of our sacred sites for the same mining companies that are funding the Yes campaign. Kieran, it's been great to chat. Thank you so much for coming on Hack. No worries at all. Thank you. That's Kieran Stewart-Asherton. He's a UN man and the president of the Black People's Union and part of what he calls the Progressive No campaign. And look, this is just one of the conversations that we're going to bring you on Hack about The Voice to Parliament. You can also listen back to some of our other episodes about The Voice. You can also find a link to that on our Instagram bio on Hack. And we're going to continue to speak to all sides of the debate until the referendum gets closer. On the text line, one person says, teaming up with racists is not going to end well for these so-called progressives. Indy says, I totally agree with what he's saying, but we need to take small steps and the voice is that. Dave from Brisbane says, this is only one person's opinion on the voice. There are many different opinions out there. I honestly believe the voice is needed and it's a long time coming. As we said, there are lots of sides to this debate and we're going to keep covering them. Now, stick around because I want to hear about all the fruit and veggies that you're eating, all the good stuff in your lunchbox and Also, hey, if you're eating too much junk food and takeaway, I want to hear about that as well. That's going to be coming up a bit later in the show. Hack. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. On Triple J. Hey, I'm Jo Lauder. I'm hanging out with you all this week on Hack. Just a heads up, before we get into this next chat, I want to give you a warning because we are going to be discussing sexual assault for the next few minutes. Now, you might have seen this video all over your socials on the weekend of the actors Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher doing one of those apology videos. They were apologising because they provided character references for one of their former co-stars on that 70s show, Danny Masterton, and he was sentenced last Friday to 30 years in jail for raping two women. And here's some of the outrage over some of those character references that they provided for him. 
Hack. Well, Myla Kunis and Ashton Kutcher are under fire for a hostage-style apology video which has set the internet ablaze. Ashton and Mila wrote letters in support of fellow That 70s Show actor Danny Masterson, who ended up being sentenced to 30 years in prison for raping two women this week. We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. The actors were criticized for calling their former co-star a role model, among other things. Oh my God, y'all. The apology video is so bad. On Triple J. Well, here in Australia, one young guy is campaigning to stop these kinds of character references being used in sentencing for all child sex abuse cases. His name is Harrison James. He's a survivor of child sex abuse, and he's the co-founder of Your Reference Ain't Relevant. Harrison, welcome to Hack. Thank you, Joe, for having me. I really appreciate it. This is an issue that is very close to home and it's something you're very passionate about. You've got this Your Reference Ain't Relevance campaign. Can you tell me why you decided to start it? Of course. Well, I think firstly it's essential to recognise that child sexual abuse is a crime that stands completely in a class of its own. It defies comparison to any other offence. And that is precisely why we firmly believe that when it comes to these specific cases, the courtroom demands a distinct and tailored set of regulations. We need the justice system to fully comprehend the intricate tactics used by these pedophiles and the manipulation they employ. Their supposed good character is just another you know, sinister weapon amongst their arsenal of deceit. The campaign aims to remove the chains of bias and change the narrative to create a legal system that prioritises the safety and well-being of survivors over the reputation of perpetrators. And we want to send a very clear message that um, there should be absolutely no room for leniency when it comes to crimes as heinous as child sexual abuse. Can you just explain how character references are used at the moment in the justice system and your focus of the campaign is specifically around child sexual abuse, as you Mm. said, how it's used in those cases and when it is and isn't used. If we think of court in two parts, we split it in two parts. We've got the trial where an accused pedophile goes through a trial and then becomes convicted. And then after that conviction, there's a sentencing procedure. And that's where the judge takes everything into account and comes up with a a sentence. And what um, these perpetrators are, are doing are getting good character references and submitting them in this in that sentencing procedure at the end there to get a lenient sentence so the amendment that we're proposing is only going to affect convicted child sexual abusers so it's seriously a no-brainer and currently what the legislation says in new south wales what the wording is 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 creating is a double standard and it's allowing some pedophiles to utilize them and it bans pedophiles from not using them. So just as an example, if a perpetrator of child sexual abuse has an outward good standing in the community, as in they're a teacher, a scout leader, you know, someone of good religion, character, yeah, someone, like of good, outward, yeah, gotcha. someone of outward good character, you know, a, a religious leader, they can't use them under the provision that's in place. But you know, I'm I'm a survivor Um, of child sexual abuse my stepmother committed these crimes against me for three years and she didn't use her outward good standing to get in contact with me so she'd be well within her right 
to use good character references if you know if it, when it went to court. So it's creating this real double standard for victims. And also another point: imagine going through a process as heinous as court, and then having to hear how good a person your perpetrator is. I mean, it's just it's just sad. And we saw this as well with, I feel like this is very reminiscent of Me Too as well, this um, this contradiction that there were so many people who were abusers hiding in plain sight because mm-hmm. they, they kind of lent on their good standing in the community or their idea that they were a good character and in some a lot of cases a celebrity. And that helped them get away with their abuse for so much longer. Mm. Well, for far too long, perpetrators have been the authors of our stories and they've been writing a narrative of fear, shame and silence. And our campaign, as I've said, isn't solely about changing legislation. It's about reclaiming our stories and rewriting the script of what justice looks like. It's about empowering survivors and giving us a voice and ensuring that our stories are heard and believed. You've called Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis hypocrites for their character reference that Mm. caused a storm over the weekend. What was it like seeing their apology that came out after it came out about their character reference and their response to it? It was a punch in the guts. But this whole thing with the Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis story, I believe, is an opportunity not to dramatise or scandalise the story, but for society to have a really good look in the mirror and ask, why do we and the systems that are meant to protect us justify the unjustifiable? Let's be crystal clear. You cannot be a convicted rapist and still claim to be of good character. You're campaigning for these changes in New South Wales where you live. Have you had any response for the New South Wales government and is there any interest in adopting these changes that you've been campaigning for? We've tabled our e-petition in the New South Wales Parliament alongside Abigail Boyd, um, who's the Greens MP that's representing our petition in the Legislative Council, and we had a meeting with the New South Wales Attorney General, Michael Daly, who has instructed the Department of Communities and Justice to commence a review of the legislation. And that's taking place as we speak. And we should expect legislative reform by November. You've clearly had then a great response from the New South Wales government. What's next for the campaign after that? We've always seen New South Wales as a pilot project, a very big pilot, mind you. (laughs) But Yeah, we've always seen it as the first step towards creating a nationwide standard for the rights of survivors. And our goal isn't just to bring change here in New South Wales, it's to set a precedent that will resonate across all jurisdictions. And we want survivors in every corner of Australia to have the same rights and protections. Child sexual abuse doesn't discriminate by state borders and neither should our efforts to combat it. Harrison, if anyone is listening and is a survivor of sexual assault or child sexual assault, what advice do you have for them? Well, there would definitely be people with lived experience listening to this. And I would say that I'm a survivor. I know firsthand the impacts of this. And as survivors, we have an authenticity that no one else can replicate. And each one of our voices can indeed be a catalyst for change. I started this journey of activism just over a year ago. So if I can sit here today advocating for change, so can you. And, you know, I'm sitting here feeling really inspired. So let this moment right now be as empowering for you as it is for me. And that is a beautiful thing that we can share together. Harrison James, 
thank you so much for coming on Hack and speaking about it and good luck with the campaign. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. That's Harrison James. He's a survivor and co-founder of Your Reference Ain't Relevant. If this has brought up any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or you can also call 1-800-RESPECT. On the text line, one person says, spot on, no references for sex offenders. He's right that it's part of the offender's arsenal in acting like the good guy. Rach says, you cannot be a good person and a rapist at the same time. The apology was so hollow and such an insult to all rape survivors and a reason why a lot of us don't report it in the first place. Big love to all survivors. Dan says, this guy's doing the work of a god as a father. Thank you to the people who go above and beyond to make sure evil injustice, evil in society are brought to justice. And one other person says, Kutra even has an anti-trafficking charity. Lol, it just goes to show that protecting friends is still more important to them. Hack. Think about having three different types of vegetables on your plate at your main meal every day. On Triple Jack. Yeah, I want you to have a think about what you've eaten today. Maybe a packet of chips, banana, some banana bread, maybe a toasty for lunch at work. Now, stop for a moment and think about how many fruit and vegetables you've eaten today. Count them all. Maybe a couple. A new study out today from CSIRO has some pretty alarming results about the number of Australians who are eating enough fruit and veggies. Hack reporter Kira Proust hit the streets to find out if just even some of you are going to get enough of your two and five every day. Hack. Nobody really can afford or even has the time to make full meals, especially ones that are balanced. It's not surprising that people are having takeaway, two-minute noodles, alcohol to deal with everything. So how many times a week do you think you're getting takeaway? <laughs> Most days, to be quite honest with you. We regularly eat carrots, so yeah, I think we get a good meal every day. And not like a huge reliance on takeaway food? Like, would you guys order takeaway food very often? No. As we are international students, we cook by ourselves. Don't think it's balanced. I like don't want to become that person, but I barely eat as well, like with the time I have. So like every time I eat, it's not that healthy. I feel like it makes sense. Like going for a Macca's run is kind of like a part of the culture. And I feel like when we eat at home with our family is the only time we actually take note of what we're eating and like actually have like a salad. I think a lot of people kind of skip those necessities, especially with the housing market right now. A lot of people are trying to save money. So a lot of people around my age are kind of making those sacrifices to save the money. On Triple Jack. Yeah, that CSIRO study also found that people working in construction and the beauty industry have the worst diets of all. If you're a tradie, I'd love to know if that rings true to what you see around you every day. Or if you're someone who thinks it's too expensive or hard to eat healthy in this society, let me know what you think. You can send me a message on 0439757555. Right now, I've got Lauren Ball with me. She's a professor of community health and well-being at the University of Queensland. Professor, thanks for coming on Hack. Just to start with, are you surprised by these results that 40% of people are eating enough veggies every day? Hey, Joe. I'm not surprised by this at all. This is not new information. It's been a challenge that Australians have been grappling with and other countries as well for many decades now. Uh, I think that the, you know, the average that's come out today from the CSIRO is even a little generous and that most of us struggle to get enough fruit and veggies, particularly veggies, in our diet each day. Yeah, so what is the benchmark for a healthy diet? I feel like we all talk about the five and two. Is, it, is that still it? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a very um, basic interpretation of what the science tells us in terms of how uh, much we need in order to have a healthy body, body and a nourishing body. So getting two fruit a day seems to be fairly achievable by most of us. Uh, maybe we're having one and a half to two serves a day, but really it's the veggie intake where we're not getting up to scratch. So most of us are still around the you know one and a half to two serves a day when we really want to aim up towards the five serves a day. Yeah, somebody has already texted in saying five or six veggies every day seems so unattainable for our busy lives. Um, what do you say to that? Is, is that part of it that, that we're just so busy that it's really hard to kind of like find ways to eat healthy? I think that's absolutely right. So what the science tells us about what our body needs is completely out of sync with our current food supplies. So it's no wonder that so many of us are finding it hard to reach the five or six serves of veggies a day. It really means that we would need to have veggies as a fundamental part of our breakfast and lunch and dinner, as well as snacks in between. So it's helpful in a way that when we're not sure what to eat, we know what to go for. And we're coming into the best season in order for eating well. So if we can increase our fruit and veggies that we have throughout the day and for our snacks, we know it's going to be better for us. Is there an issue here with food literacy as well? Because like, it seems like every day we're so bombarded with messages about, you know, this is a diet something and this is like zero sugar or low sugar and this has got healthy, so-called healthy labelling. Is there part of the problems that we just like don't know what is healthy anymore? I think that's one factor in the sense that food can be promoted to us as being healthy when uh, it may not be the case. But I think when you drill down and chat to most people informally, they know, we know how to eat well. We know that the way we currently eat isn't always the best that we can do, but really it's about continuing to make healthy choices each day for the benefit of our body. Hey, Lauren, um, Carly on the text line says, can you maybe confirm how big a serve of veggies is? And also Sam was like, it's confusing. Do tomatoes and avocados count as fruit or vegetables? So there's a couple of questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. It is confusing. And because it's such a simple message and it's very hard to account for all the different foods in our diet, but roughly one cup of raw veggies is a serve or half a cup of cooked veggies. So when we think about a salad, that would be raw veggies, lettuce, tomato, I would count avocado in there, uh, you know, cucumber, capsicum, all the things that we want to throw into a salad. We're getting so many messages in about this. Someone says, I'm a paramedic with 12 to 14 hour long shifts and I miss my meal breaks. Takeaway ends up being a big friend of ours. Can you just explain, um, part of this study talks about discretionary food. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, essentially discretionary food is a food that doesn't fit into one of our core food groups, such as fruit and veggies and dairy products and meat and alternatives and grain products. So a discretionary food might be, for example, a muesli bar or a packet of chips or soft drink or ice cream where it's usually high in energy, high in sodium, usually quite processed. And a good way to know the difference between discretionary and non-discretionary is in a supermarket, the foods that you're likely to pull off the shelves up the middle aisles are usually discretionary foods, whereas we want to stick to the foods around the outside, the fruit and the veg and the fresh meat and dairy products. That's what we want to be aiming for in our diet. I read something earlier this year that described, I think it is discretionary food. They were talking about junk food, but they said 
it should be rebranded as addictive edible substances because essentially it's not even food, but it's basically engineered because it's so addictive and so edible that we don't want to stop eating. And honestly, thinking about it that way really changed my thinking around some of this discretionary food. You're absolutely right, Joe. And we hear people say anecdotally that the first few days of you know being on a real health kick can be quite challenging where you may not have the taste for those healthy foods. You might be craving some of those highly processed or high sugar foods, but then after a few days, your taste buds change and you start to crave what's really good for us. So the key there is to stick at it and continue to make really good choices in the moment over the long term. And Lauren, a lot of people have been texting in about this and it's something, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis at the moment. We're hearing how expensive things are. Is that an issue here with, um, in terms of access to healthy and fresh food? Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, about six or 12 months ago, it was more expensive to buy a head of lettuce than it was to buy a six pack of McDonald's nuggets. So cost of living is definitely a factor that's weighing on people's minds. But I think it is a misnomer that it's you know, unaffordable to eat healthy. Really, we are spending quite a lot on takeaway foods, especially if we haven't planned ahead, prepare in advance and then head to the shops and buy what's on special and what's in season. Okay, so think in advance, prepare in advance and shop for um, shop for what's in season. Lauren, that's all we've got time for, but thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and breaking this down for us. Thanks, Joe. That was Lauren Ball. She's a professor of community health and wellbeing at the University of Queensland. Thanks for sticking around. I'll catch you tomorrow. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.